Hey, welcome back to Mountain Murders. We've been on a little hiatus, but yes. we're back in action. Yes, we are back. We've had a lot of people reach out and say, hey, when are you guys going to put out a new episode? We yes. want to hear more of the podcast. Like, We're really excited that you guys actually listen. Yeah, we are. So and so cool. it's taken us a little time, but here we are. We're back. We've got a great story to start off with. It is one of the best stories we've ever told, honestly. So this was... Um, a story that was really surprising, and actually one of our listeners recommended it. Yes, they did. They uh, wanted to remain anonymous, but you know who you are. Yeah, so thanks for the suggestion. And you know what's really strange is once we started digging into the meat of the story, I realized that this murderer um, actually lives in the neighborhood I grew up in. Inside of the house you grew up in, actually. Yeah, so like if you're at my mom's house and you stand on her upstairs like balcony, you can totally see this house. She can see the murder house from her mama's house. It's true. So that's pretty crazy to think. Of course, we do live in kind of a small area, but it's really strange to think what a small world it is. Yes, small town stuff right there, guys. Because this is essentially like a serial killer that lived in my neighborhood. He killed in multiple countries. Yeah. So, I mean, that's crazy. So, we're going to get to that here soon, but I'm really excited. Are you ready, Dylan? Yes, I'm ready. I can't wait. Okay. So, Peter London, okay, he was born in Denmark, February 15th, 1972. And from what I understand, his dad was in the service over in Denmark and was somehow stationed perhaps in Germany. And his name was Ole London. Or Oli, I don't know. I'm not I'm not Danish, so I'm not really sure. But I think his name was Oli, um, and he met this lady Anna Shatner, and they ended up getting married in in Germany. And they were married for a while. They thought they couldn't have children, so when Anna found out that she was pregnant with their son, she was very excited, you know, because they really thought they weren't going to be able to have a have a child. And from what I read on Oli, he was like a bricklayer. And did a lot of, like, really hard manual types of labor. And I guess at some point he was injured on the job. So he, um, you know, became kind of disabled and had a really hard time, like, picking up where he had left off with the bricklaying and that oh, kind of yeah, stuff. Oh, yeah, so he couldn't do what he, he'd done all his life. Yeah, so they decided to come to the United States. And I guess they already had some family um, living over here. So they uh, moved to the United States in 1979. And they first settled in Ormond Beach, Florida. And they bought a hotel there. And they ran that hotel up until the early 80s. So in 1984, the family decided to move to Maggie Valley, where they had, I guess, some aunts and uncles that lived close by. So they thought it was a nice spot. They moved to Western North Carolina. And that's when things really kind of started to take a turn for the worst. Yeah, we get a lot of people from Florida up here because of the cool mountain evenings. 
We sure do. It's definitely a, a very popular uh, tourism spot. Yes. And then a lot of folks visit the area, fall in love with it because, let's face it, it's absolutely beautiful here. Right. And, and they then, insist this is where I'm going to come drive like an asshole. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they move up here and they'll tend to buy a second home or maybe they retire here, that kind of thing. So not a completely uncommon situation. But they ended up in Maggie Valley and apparently uh, three or four houses down from my mother which is very strange. But let's get back to the story. So Anna, the mother, began drinking pretty heavily when they moved up here to North Carolina, and she started abusing Peter physically and mentally. And during this time, Ole had, of course, the bad health, and I guess he felt he really kind of couldn't stop his wife's torment of their son. I mean, I guess he would kind of step in a little bit here and there, but, you know, she was really domineering, she was what they call a raging alcoholic. And yeah, it, was it sounds just... like a very dysfunctional situation. Totally. Well, at some point, Peter and his dad decided to leave Anna, and they picked up and left, and this would have been sometime maybe in like the um, later 80s, I guess, maybe 87, 88, something like that. And they left Anna, North Carolina. Um, Ole and Anna separated, and uh, his dad... Um, they kind of bounced around a little bit. They first moved to Los Angeles. They were only there for a couple of weeks. They went to New York City. That didn't work out. They were in Boston for a little while, and they ended up settling back in uh, Miami, Florida. So they went back kind of to the area that they were somewhat familiar with. And I guess at that point, Dad was trying to do some of the physical labor, the bricklaying and that kind of stuff, but just really wasn't working out for him. Um, during this time, Peter got really um, interested in playing football, wrestling, was getting really involved in sports, but also started dabbling in drugs. And from what I was uh, researching here, Peter apparently started using cocaine. Uh -oh. And we all know coke in the 80s, that was kind of a thing. In Miami, you know, you really think about that being kind of a like a hub for the cocaine industry, if you will. Cocaine is a hell of a drug. Well, yeah, Rick James said that, and he I did. agree. So when they finally decided to reconcile, Anna and Ole, they moved back, uh, Peter and his dad moved back to North Carolina, they reconciled, and so at that point, Peter was already, um, you know, playing the sports, I guess he had kind of, was in good athletic sort of shape, and, you know, he'd been using cocaine, using drugs, and he also started selling pot to many of the people that he was in high school with, like a lot of the other students. So later on, um, you know, I guess when people were interviewed about Peter, they were like, oh, yeah, that guy was our dealer. He sold us a lot of weed and, I guess, other pharmaceuticals and whatnot. And he must have had the good stuff. They remembered it all those years later. Yeah, I guess so. Well, during this time, after the reconciliation, you know, they're trying to make a go of it again. The family's all reunited. Um, and you got to keep in mind, Peter's dabbling in drugs, that kind of thing. Apparently, he began abusing his mother. And there were several neighbors, the mailman, who would later come out as witnesses and say that, uh, you know, the abuse was, was pretty terrible. And that oftentimes Peter and the father, Oli, would like gang up on Anna and smack her around, beat her up. Like this was just sort of a common thing. So you think it was like revenge? Almost, yeah. Yeah, you know. Because I, I guess at this point, Peter, you know, when he was a small kid and his mother would abuse him... He, he was couldn't a kid, do anything about but it. Now at this point, he's a teenager. He's been playing sports, football, right. wrestling. He's probably got you know a nice, solid build on him. Yes. athletic, muscular, that kind of thing. And then you got a couple that if he's using drugs, 
probably well, yeah. setting well, off a little of that rage in him. I mean, who knows? Yeah, you get the drug psychosis, the, you know, becoming an unreasonable person with a short fuse and things like that. And you got to wonder if uh, the dad was kind of complicit in this or, you know, at the very least didn't do anything to stop it. That you got to wonder if the mom had, you know, kind of berated the father and over, you know, kind of with her attitude and personality, you know, kind of overshadowed him the entire time or maybe treated him like pure shit, too. Yeah, maybe just sort of emasculated him. Yeah, definitely. Kind of like one of those, uh, you know, what do they call that? A henpecked a, man or something? A ball buster. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it kind of seems that that's the case because um, we'll get to that here in a few minutes. But, uh, yeah, it definitely seems like that was the case in this situation. But, um Anyway, Peter and his dad were abusing his mother, which, of course, is inexcusable, shouldn't have happened. But there was a witness um, who was also the neighbor, I guess maybe the next door neighbor. Her name was Mrs. Hartzell. And I didn't get a first name, but Mrs. Hartzell was, was this lady. And she said Anna would come over to the house with cuts, bruises, um, you know, gashes on her face, scratches. Um, one time she had an extremely swollen leg to the point they thought her leg was broken. That's crazy. Yeah. And she said um, that Anna was always saying how she was afraid of her husband and her son and that she just knew she was going to be murdered one day. And she begged Mrs. Hartzell not to move away. I guess Mrs. Hartzell put her house up on the market, was planning to move. And this woman just begged her, please don't leave. And she said, you know, if you leave me, I know I'm going to be kill- killed, you know, pretty quickly after wow. you leave. Like, you're kind of my only hope here. Um, apparently, the cops were called multiple times to the home for domestic situations involving abuse and fighting, yelling, screaming, that kind of thing. Multiple neighbors had reported this activity to the police. And I guess maybe at that time, you know, we've had a shift in attitudes as far as domestic violence. I mean, I think in the past, even the last, you know, 20, 30 years, things have definitely changed because there was a time when... You know, cops would come to your house for domestic and they would be like, yeah, we don't really want to get involved in this. Yeah. And they're also thinking if you just listened to your husband, you wouldn't have this problem. Well, there were those attitudes. I mean, honestly, that's how it was. So, you know, even though there were several reports made, police called, like no one was ever arrested. You know, nothing was ever really done about it. And so within two weeks of Mrs. Hartzell moving out of state, we find Anna dead. Yeah. So she wasn't exaggerating when she told her that. No, she wasn't. But so let me get into the details of this. So April 2nd, 1991, um, the couple, Anna and Ole, decided to separate again. You know, they're kind of on and off again throughout this marriage. She's, you know, been described um, by her son, her husband, as just a really severe alcoholic um, you know, physically and mentally abusive to the son. Well, now she's being abused by the son. They just are, you know, this is a happy, uh, an unhappy situation. This is a, a couple that definitely, they seem like they don't need to be together. Right. So they decide to separate. So April 2nd, they've separated. Um, the father and son duo take Anna to Atlanta, where she's planning to move back to her home in Germany, uh, Munich, Germany. And she has some family there, and she's going to return, move in with relatives, go back to Germany. They're just going to call it quits. Like, that's their plan. Um, However, they drop her off in Atlanta on April 2nd, and only five days later, she returns. And I didn't find any information on whether or not she actually flew to Germany or if she just hung out in Atlanta for five days and then decided to come back home. I'm not sure. So the day she returns home which I guess would have been maybe April the 7th or something. 
Um, she had been drinking that day. Um, and apparently she's drinking, she's sort of being loud, obnoxious, you know, what they normally, you know, would describe as how she is. And she kind of walks over to Peter with a pair of scissors and she starts threatening to cut his hair. Now you have to keep in mind, so Peter has this really long hair. He kind of looks like one of those, um, like he wants to be a Norwegian death metal like right. singer, like he's, you know, Euronymous or Varg. Long plus, black hair. Yeah, plus he's from Denmark, and so I guess he's, you know, maybe he's into that. I don't know, but he's got that look. He's got the really long hair. Of course, this is the early 90s. I guess having a, a mane of Fabio slash um, Michael Bolton hair is trendy. I don't well, know. Maybe he's a big fan of Hercules. Maybe. And he thinks all his power is tied up in his hair. Well, that's true. So she's like taunting him about having the long hair. She keeps telling him she's going to cut his hair. She has these scissors. Um, you know, just kind of keeps on and on about it. And he's telling her like, I'm not going to cut my hair. Leave me alone. You know, whatever. And so at some point she goes as far as like even grabbing him by the hair and refusing to let go. So she's kind of essentially like pulling his hair with the scissors and threatening. So he flies into this rage and he grabs his mother by the shirt collar. And he says that he pulled her basically with the shirt collar until she just went limp. So her whole body just goes limp. Oh no. Yeah. So then he lays her down on, uh, onto the floor and he said he saw her open her eyes. So I guess at that point he thought she was still alive. So he places her on the floor and he leaves the house and he's gone for about two hours. And when he returns, his mother's dead. Well, that's totally normal. Choke your mom out till she goes limp and then leave before you know that she's not dead. Right. Of course, he's not grown up in a normal household. So. Well, he hasn't. And, you know, I'm sure that he's been abusing his mother for a couple of years at this point. Right. So, you know. He may not care. Maybe he's accustomed to choking her out or that's true beating her till she blacks out or you know who knows Maybe what's that's going not on the first time exactly so when he comes home his mother's not breathing she's dead you know i guess uh, he kind of starts to panic a little bit he wraps her body in a blue blanket and uses some ropes and and duct tape kind of to you know roll her up into this blanket tie her up um almost as if you were making like a, a blanket burrito or something you know or a death joint. Yeah, a d yeah, a death doobie. Death yeah. doobie. So he's rolled up this death doobie that has his mom stuffed inside. We shouldn't be so morbid. That's not funny. And he gets his father to go with him. So I guess at this point, you know, his dad's realized, hey, my wife's dead. My son killed her. But he doesn't seem to phased by this. Yeah, he's probably looking forward to the quiet evening the next day. <laughs> probably. <laughs> but um, they drive to the Outer Banks of North Carolina where they decide to bury her body um, in this dune that's kind of by the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse. Now, that's a long drive. That is not a couple of hours. No, that's like an, probably eight, nine-hour drive. Yeah. yeah. So you're driving all the way down to the coast from the mountains of North Carolina, and you got your mom's dead body in the car. Yeah, and so I guess that's considered Buxton Beach is the area. But anybody who knows anything about the Outer Banks or... Um, Cape Hatteras, the lighthouse area, there's a lot of erosion there over the years. Um, there's been some serious issue with, you know, hurricanes coming through, storms, wind, the water eroding away, rising oceans, that kind of thing. So um, I guess it was eight months later. So you have to consider this was April. 
1991. So we fast forward eight months later on November 1st, 1991. Her body was discovered by some uh, beachgoers. And there had been a really, like, from what I read, there had been a pretty severe storm just like days before this. And the storm had eroded part of the dune away. And I started thinking about this as well as 91. I mean, wasn't that around the time of like Hurricane Hugo? Uh, I think so. That's one of the big storms that hit um, that I know really did some damage to the coast. And a lot of the lighthouses, can sit, you know, especially um, Cape Hatteras, that area. Yeah. So basically they drove past all these other great places to dump a body to take it to the one place where you might not want to bury a body. And sand. Yeah, well, there you go. So anyway, these beachgoers find this body. And at that point, you know, it was pretty hard to determine who she was. They didn't know anything about her. It actually took the police another, like, four months to identify Anna Shatner, um, London, uh, yeah, London as the victim. And at that time, she was 59 years old. And the police report says that the neck was fractured but, um, you know, they really didn't know, like, I guess the cause of death, you know, how her neck had been fractured, that kind of thing. So they were really, you know, trying to scramble to figure out who this person was. I mean, you got to realize this is eight months later and it's on the coast and it's hot and sticky. And that environment, I'm sure the body was pretty decomposed at that point. Right. So they took them a while to figure out who she is. Yeah. Let alone where she came from. And then trying to How'd figure she out, get there? you know, the autopsy and trying to figure out exactly what happened to her. And of course, we've had a lot of advancements in technology since 1991. But I'm sure this body out in the elements, you know, kind of exposed and whatever for this extended period of time probably was a little harder to determine like what exactly had happened to this I'm person. I'm sure it was. So by June 6th, 1992, so you got to consider this is over a year later, um, they finally decided to, uh, you know, I guess, track down Peter and Oli, figured out that they were the murderers or they had enough evidence against them, you know. So they started to track them down and they found them in Canada. So, I mean, what's more guilty than, hey, we're just going to up and mysteriously vanish without our mom and go to Canada? Yeah. So they were in a Toronto hotel room when they were both arrested. Now, later, um, when Peter was awaiting trial, he had a cellmate that told um, the story that, you know, Peter, of course, kind of opened up and started talking a bit about what had happened and life with his mom and dad and that sort of thing. And Peter told his cellmate that his father, Oli, wasn't present during the murder. Um, so that, you know, his father really wasn't guilty of murdering her. He didn't participate in it. He just helped with the cover up. But that the two had discussed killing Anna on several occasions because they couldn't deal with her alcoholism and her overbearing nature, her personality, how mean and cruel she was, combative. Like they were just miserable living with her. Yeah, you could just get away from her, though. Well, you'd think. So, July 1993, uh, Peter was sentenced to 20 years in Adair County Court, and his father was only given two years for being an accomplice. Well, Peter ended up appealing that sentence, and it was something about, like, the motive being, um, like, with, um, you know, like, malicious intent. Right. What is that? Like, uh mal I can't, I can't think of the term but there's a legal term for that but malfeasance mm, no i don't know okay. I, I haven't watched legally blonde in a while so i can't You're right i'm not up on my legal terms but there is a word for that that means like mens rea maybe where it's like with 
um, you know, malicious intent kind of thing. Right. Which, you know, the prosecutors were trying to argue that, well, obviously it was malicious intent because you don't just grab somebody and strangle right them. Neck. Yeah. You know, choke them to death, strangle them without some malicious intent. Right. You don't do that to say, hey, I love you. Exactly. But they were able to argue the defense that, you know, there wasn't a malicious intent, that, you know, it was almost kind of like a accidental. an accidental thing, and that, uh, you know, it should be reduced from first-degree murder to second-degree murder. Well, I guess the courts went along with that. He won the appeal. It went back to trial. But he was still found guilty of second-degree murder, and they sentenced him from, you know, 15 years, which the original sentence had been 20 years. So he shaved off five years of his sentence. Okay. And he was, uh, I guess, sent to Brown Creek Correctional Institute, which is somewhere here in North Carolina. And during this time, um, there was a lot of um, prison overpopulation happening. And from what I understand, this Brown Creek is somewhere near like Fayetteville area and that they had this overflow of um, convicted inmates or whatever that were being sent there from Fayetteville, from Fort Bragg, from the Army base. And they just didn't have enough room to accommodate all of these people. So they actually ended up letting Peter out um, in 1999. Well, it seems like he let murderers out last. but Yeah, you know, so he really only served, like, what, six years, maybe? Yeah, six pushing seven years. Yeah, uh, and so that wasn't even half of his 15-year sentence. Wow. Yeah. Well, part of the, the sentencing deal as well was that he would get the prison time, and then once he was released from prison, they were going to deport him back to Denmark after oh. he served out his sentence. So they are going to get rid of him, get him out of here. Yeah. So let me not jump too far ahead here, though, as far as the uh, release, but um, this is kind of an interesting side note, I thought. In 1994, there was this Danish TV show called American Dream that would interview Danish citizens who were living in the United States and, uh, you know, just basically about their experience, how they were able to come here and improve their lives or, you know, whatever, that kind of show. Well, as we know, the Scandinavian countries kind of have more liberal views on things than like we do here in the United States. They do. And so they ended up finding out about this guy, Peter London, and they put him on the show. Even though he's a convicted murderer, he's in prison, he's murdered his mother, they still put him on TV. You can find the YouTube video of the interview. They kind of made this like little documentary about him. And of course, you can't understand it unless you're a fluent speaker of... Danish? Or, yeah, or dance. Isn't that what they call it? I don't Is it know. Dutch? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Okay. I don't know what they speak. Anyway. America. You act like I know because I read Hamlet in high school. Okay. So anyway, he was on this show being interviewed and they brought in a psychiatrist who gave him the psychopathy checklist. And out of 40 possible points, Peter scored a 39 out of 40. So that means you're a, a fucking psycho. So, yeah, the guy's, right? got, he's fucked up. Right. Yeah, he's not normal. Yeah, nobody gets anywhere near, I mean, almost, you might as well say you got all of the points. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so it's like, okay, this guy's a maniac, right? So you're full-blown, narcissistic, psycho, crazy person. I mean, to commit matricide anyway, you're probably not the most stable person mentally, and, you know, that's not normal. But, right. But then on top of, of that, like, here we go, you're also a psychopath. and Plenty of people have, a, you know, a mother who was very mean, abusive, horrible their entire childhood. And they just get away from them the first chance they can. They don't kill them. Right. But we've noticed with a lot of true crime, a lot of the, especially serial killers overbearing, they, abusive mothers yes. 
literally, and then they, they're missing other components in their brain chemistry, but they almost always need that overbearing, abusive mother figure, more so than the father figure, it seems, to create this uh, full-blown psycho, psycho. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of those uh, very infamous serial killers that have had um, reported, you know, very dysfunctional types Either, of relationships with right. their mom, abusive, that kind of thing. It can be father or mother, but it typically seems to be the mother. Yeah, with the men, it definitely seems to be like mom plays a big role in that early childhood development or whatever. So in June of 1999, he is finally released. And as I mentioned, it's because of the overcrowding here in the North Carolina prisons. And so they fly him back to Denmark, to Copenhagen, and that's where he's going to, you know, live. And I guess while he was in prison, he was able to marry a Danish woman named Tina. They started some, I guess she saw him on that documentary. They started some sort of male correspondence. You know, a lot of these women want to marry men in prison, and I don't know what that's about, unless it's like, well, at least I know where he is at all times. Well, maybe that's on their checklist for the perfect guy, a guy who's killed his mother. Yeah, I don't know. That just seems like a really, like, bad yeah, idea. I don't get it. I don't either. But, um, I don't know. We should do a little experiment. We should, like, make a Tinder profile and then put on there, like, I murdered my mother and see how many, like, swipes we get. Yeah, like, I didn't mean to. Just like a weird social experiment. Yeah, anyway, we'll do that later. Yeah, she beat me, so I broke her neck. <laughs> right. Her. Okay, we'll put a picture of Peter on there. Yeah. We should make him a dating profile and see how that goes. So, he met this woman in 1996, and that's kind of how the relationship began. So, you got to consider, I guess they were kind of corresponding for like three years. They have some weird marriage ceremony while he's in prison. They're married, blah, blah, blah. So, by the fall, now this is in June. So, by the fall, which is only a couple of months after arriving in Copenhagen, um, he and Tina had this really violent fight. He attacked her. He attacked her daughter. And so, of course, she kicks him out. He ends up moving into, like, a men's home, which I just imagine, like, the YMCA or something. I wonder if she, at some point, was even surprised that this crazy guy who was in jail for killing his mother flipped out on her and attacked her. Yeah, and her daughter? And Well, why not? You kill your own mom, I'll beat your daughter up. Yeah, it just seems like a really irresponsible, as a parent... Of right. a child yes. to be like, hey, I'm going to marry this guy who murdered someone. Oh, and I'm going to bring him here and, like, totally let him kill us. It's I don't your, know. It's your new stepdaddy. You had a kissy daddy. Anyway, so weird. Well, so he moved into this men's home. And like I said, I just imagine it being like the YMCA. Like, young man, you just got out of jail. Hey, it's a young man. Okay, I'm I bet stop. it smells like sweat and cigarettes. Yeah, probably. I, I just imagine, like, salami and cigarettes or something. Ah. Yeah. Anyway, so while he's staying at this men's home, I mean, I guess he doesn't have too many other hobbies. So what do newly kicked out inmates do? They start visiting a brothel in well, Copenhagen. Of course. Right? Why wouldn't you? Yeah, I know. I don't, I don't know why that's an issue. But so anyway, he starts frequenting this brothel. And I guess maybe it's kind of close to the men's home. Doesn't have to go too far to the red light district. But uh, he becomes client of this a sex worker. Her name was Marianne Peterson. And so, you know, they're doing the whole, uh, you know, pay, what is it, play, pay for play thing. See, I can't talk yes. right now. But, um, you know, she's 36. She was a recent widow. Her husband had died about a year before this. And, you know, she's just trying to make ends meet. I guess she has two sons. They're kind of young, um, not quite teenagers yet. I'm going to guess from the photos I've seen, they might have been maybe like 9 and 10 or 9 and 11. I mean, they were they were pretty young kids. And so Marianne's really just kind of working there, trying to, you know, do for her family, 
you know, make ends meet. And of course, in um, Scandinavia and a lot of those European countries, they have a very uh, lax attitude about sex work and brothels and prostitution. It's legal and it's like not really a big deal. It's not taboo there. Simple economics. She has a commodity. The public wants it. And she's just, you know, delivering. Yeah, I mean, I think sex work is work, but we won't get into that. We'll save that for our new political podcast that we're going to have coming out soon. But London and Marianne kind of begin, you know, seeing each other outside of the brothel. And so they become lovers, start dating. And so by July of um, 2000, so you got to consider he's been in Denmark for a year after this, separated from his wife, you know, hooking up with this lady, whatever. Marianne's older stepson, because as I mentioned, she had been married before. Her husband was dead. I guess he had older children. So her stepson was trying to get in touch with her. And this would have been July the 3rd. Can't reach her. He's tried cell phones. He's tried house phones. You know, he finally goes over to the house because he can't get Marianne. He's got these two little brothers. I mean, he's kind of worried, you know, wants to know what's up. And he said that there was a note on the door that says that they had taken a vacation. Well, the note was worded really oddly. And so it kind of gave him pause because he was like, this sounds weird. I well, don't, yeah. you, you know. You know, if it's a loved one, someone you're very close to, no matter who they are, uh, nowadays with all the texting, it stands out. You automatically know when someone's texting and claiming to be someone else because just of wording, like you said, and sentence structure. Well, yeah, and then you got to think about it's worded oddly, and Peter is, you know, probably speaking the language, probably can write it, but you got to remember he's been in the United States since he was a pretty small kid. Right. So he's very fluent in the English language. Right. And so you got to think about this note, and if it's not written in a way that Marianne would have worded it then. Or just the people in that language, period. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, you've you got to think them. about yeah, like right. the, you know, how you, uh, you know, sentence structure and all that. Right. And foreign language can be a little different and all that kind of stuff. So, anyway, this note says that they're on vacation. And so the stepson's like, yeah, this doesn't seem right. So he starts kind of, you know, doing the thing where you peek in the windows, that kind of stuff. And he sees that the house is just in complete disarray, like just torn all the pieces, shit everywhere, basically. Um, he says there's trash piled up. It just looks like a scene. So I guess he is able to make his way into the home, starts walking around. There's bags of trash, trash piled up. He said there was like vomit in both toilets of the house. That's weird. Yeah. And that there was a really strange smell in the house. So, you know, never a good thing when people are missing and the house smells funkier than James Brown. No, I'm sure at this point he's really worried because. Yeah. Yeah. So he phones the police. They make their way over and they immediately put together like, hey, this is a crime scene. Like something has definitely happened here. The police find blood stains in the house, on the tile, in the bathrooms, the kitchen, um, even in Peterson's bed, in her car, the trunk of her car, um, even on the kitchen blender. There was a cutting board that had some blood on it, and they even found some blood, like, in the blender. So you got to wonder, like, how the fuck does that happen? Oh, that's weird. Very strange. So they just know something really terrible has happened. Um, and also, the, there's a basement and there's a garage. And both of those 
um, rooms or whatever are definitely like there's been a crime scene here, right? So the police start piecing all this together, and a couple of days later, July 5th, so that would have been like two days after the discovery of this empty, fucked up house, um, Peter London is arrested. And they soon, you know, kind of piece together that Peterson, uh, Marianne Peterson and her two sons, had been killed and dismembered. And they said, you know, they think that maybe the first had been done in the basement, or at least one had been done in the basement, and then at some point, maybe the other two in the garage. And I guess they kind of pieced that together because the garage definitely seemed like more of a scene. And there was even a freezer on the property um, in a shed kind of in her backyard, and they even found some traces of blood in that freezer. And they started examining, they found some human tissue on an angle grinder, and so they came to realize uh, out in the garage that this is probably where, you know, at least two people had been killed. This angle grinder had been used most likely to dismember these bodies. Now, um, that's cr- that right there strikes me as cr- totally crazy. Yeah. Because I've used an angle grinder or any grinder. Anyone that has knows that would not be clean. That would not be easy to do. That would be a damn mess. Which explains to cut up a body. I with guess an angle why they found blood essentially everywhere, all over the house. Right. Yeah. Well, they also found about a hundred visible cut marks on the garage floor. Oh, so, so they were able to determine that he had used an axe and had dismembered these people with this axe. Literally chopping the bodies up of a woman and two kids. And with some brute force, if you got to think about yes. axe marks and actually being in the basement or the garage floor. Because most garages have that concrete yeah. floor. So you'd have to really put some force in to be able to, one, I think, dismember three bodies. But also to make those kind of marks. Over a oh, yeah. hundred marks on a concrete floor. And you're you're not taking proper care of an axe either, using it like that. I'm just saying. Okay. With, yeah. <laughs> well, as a man, I appreciate your input on that. Well, I'm just saying that edge is going to be dulled yeah. by that concrete floor. Yeah. And the bones. I'm, I'm interested that that's what you're um, thinking about right now. But well, okay. Well, we'll move on. So Peter London said, well, he had a story, of course. He had a reason for all of this. <laughs> and so he says that he was over at Marianne's house and that he'd heard some screams and that this was in June, like sometime maybe the 16th or the 17th. He couldn't quite remember. So you got to remember by the time these people are found missing is July 3rd. So it'd been a couple of weeks at this point. But he says that uh, he heard these screams. He found Marianne in the basement and that she had just went crazy and killed her sons and that she was on drugs and she was unconscious next to the boys, like where she had taken all these drugs. And so maybe she was trying to kill herself. He didn't know, you know, that kind of thing. But that he saw this scene, he flew into a rage and he beat her to death. But that he was too afraid to call the police because of his uh, previous, you know, criminal. My previous killing my mom. Yeah. His, right. His, so he was really afraid to tell the truth, that kind of thing. That's... Which that reminds me of the case in Colorado with that guy, what was his name? Chris Watts. That claimed, you know, he killed his wife and two daughters. Right. But he claims that he caught his wife 
murdering their two daughters and that he flew into a rage and killed his wife. Right. He was just doing the right thing. Yeah. the father's love. Yes. And that's why he took their bodies and put them in an oil tank out at that industrial site. Right. But, but see, that kind of reminds me of this. Right. Like how you blame the victim and, yeah, you know. Yeah. They're not even here to defend themselves and you're just going to put all this crap on them. But I believe his story. I'm going to be honest. I believe his story. It seems totally plausible. After having killed your mom, she made him do it. By, you know, she being, was asking for it. Right. Well, she was probably wearing something. She was probably was wearing like, something revealing invite, as well. Hey, I'm, I'm wearing an outfit that invites murder. Right. And so, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then now he's, you know, beat up that woman, flew, you know, flipped out on her kid that married him and he moves over here. And now, you know, this other woman has made him kill her. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just, it's a, just a, just a, Series of unfortunate events for Pe- poor Peter. I don't know why they didn't believe Peter. Him. Okay, so of course the cops know that this is complete bullshit. I mean, they're like, yeah, right. Okay, so he's sitting in jail. They keep questioning him. I mean, they're basically telling him like, you are so full of it. Like, we know this is bullshit. So he finally, I guess, confesses. And this would have been October thirteenth of two thousand. He um, finally confessed that he and Marianne had argued because he had heard her on the phone with another man, like sweet talking this other guy, and that it made him really mad. Well, you got to think about, well, okay, first of all, she's a prostitute. You met her in a brothel, bro. You met her in a brothel. I mean, who's to say she wasn't speaking to a client, right? Or still selling that thing. Well, I mean, she probably is. I doubt she stopped doing that just because she's like seeing Peter. That's I mean, my job, bro. Right, exactly. So anyway, he says that it really made him mad, whatever. They they started fighting and that he like threw her on the bed and he broke her neck. Oops. Because it's a classic Peter move right there. And I guess her sons came in, you know, heard the struggle, came in, of course, jump into the pile trying to fight this guy who's attacking their mom. He ends up breaking her son's necks as well. Could you imagine killing these two boys? Poor kids. No. So then he's stuck with these three bodies, and he puts them in the deep freezer. Because remember I told you there was a freezer on the right. property in a shed? So he takes the bodies, puts them out there. So a couple of days later, which would have been June 19th, so he's trying to figure out his game plan here, he decides to go shopping, and he buys an axe, some rubber gloves, plastic bags, cleaning products. And that's when he decides to dismember the bodies, and place them in these plastic garbage bags. Now, imagine being at the register there, working at whatever store. Here comes this guy with an axe, rubber gloves, two or three bottles of cleaner or bleach. What would be your first thought? Well, my first thought is that my job is to ring up your purchases, and I'm not here to make judgment calls about your purchases. Oh, I'm totally going to this dude getting rid of a body. Yeah, well, yeah of course, killing that, people. that'd be the first thing you would think. But if right. I know this person's a maniac, I'm not going like, well, yeah, to I'm not going to I'm not going to be like, excuse me, sir, are you a serial killer? Yeah, I'm on the phone <laughs> with the police. And, you know, no, yeah. I'm not going to do any of that, but I'm totally going to judge this guy. Oh, well, yeah, probably. Um, so, you know, he places the body parts in different pl- trash bags, basically, in these plastic bags. And he puts some of them out on the curb for pickup, for trash pickup. That's crazy. It is. And then he took some of the other body parts and placed them around town in different, you know, dumpsters and trash bins. And the sad part is the bodies have never been recovered. 
So when the cops find out that he's dumped these bodies basically in like a landfill, you know, that they're probably in a landfill someplace, uh, they dug through over 10,000 tons of trash. That's a lot of trash. Yeah. Trying to find these bodies, never able to recover them. So, of course, Peters goes to prison. He's found guilty. He's serving life sentence right now in prison. So while he has been in this prison in Denmark after murdering these three people, he has been married twice. So those ladies just keep lining up for him. And he's changed his name twice. And so right now, instead of Peter London, he's going by Bjarn Skornberg. Yeah, which sounds like a Bond villain. Yeah, I hear that or is a good porn name. Bjarn Skornberg. I don't know. Yeah, I just think it sounds like a Bond villain. And in 2009, he wrote an autobiography called A Murderer's Confessions. I would have named it Break Your Neck. <laughs> I would have named it Protect Your Neck. Yeah, Protect so, Your Neck. anyway, got any Wu-Tang fans out there? So, A Murderer's Confession uh, didn't have great sales, surprisingly. Like, it wow. didn't do that well. But I guess around um, this time, it sold about 5,000 copies. So, I guess if you'd like to read his autobiography, you can find that probably somewhere out there on the internet. Yeah. Or maybe you'll see it at Goodwill. Maybe. So, here we go. That was Peter London, and he was living in Maggie Valley when he committed its first murder and basically went on to become a serial killer. He killed across the world. I mean, basically, he took it international. Yeah, and so, his M.O. was definitely the strangulation, breaking the necks. Very violent to break someone's neck. That's not easy. Very violent. Yeah, Well, very violent to hack up a body. Well, that's true, too. With an axe and an angle grinder. Well, we've always said here at Mountain Murders that once it, you know, you can accidentally kill someone. Stuff happens. But once you uh, decide to cut bodies up, then that's just a whole nother level crazy in my book. Uh, Yeah, that definitely takes it to the next level. But then you've got to consider the guy scored a 39 out of 40 points. Oh, that, that was nothing for him. Psychopath checklist. I kind of want to take this psychopath test and just see what we score. I'm not sure you should. Well, anyway, speaking of other murders that hit close to home, because it's just really weird to think that they lived in the house that's just, like, down the street from my mom. Yeah. So the next time we go visit my mom, I'm going to be super weirded out. Like, that's the murder house. Oh, uh, yeah. We, we may even put a picture of the murder house up. Yeah, actually, we were thinking about adding a photo of the murder house to our Patreon account for those folks who um, check in at different levels. If you want to throw us a couple of bucks, of course, you can find us on Patreon, and we gladly accept your donations because, you know, we do this for fun. We're not really making any money off of it. It's oh, no. It's just kind of a fun hobby, but it does help us, um, you know, maintain equipment and that kind of stuff. Yes, and uh, you can uh, find us there on uh, Facebook at Mountain Murders. And wherever you listen to podcasts, of course, we are on Patreon. You can get the RSS feed from Patreon. Uh, we are also on Spreaker.com, Mountain Murders. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, any major market for podcasts, no matter where you listen, we should be there. Yeah, iTunes. So anyway, um, thanks for checking us out. We're glad to be back in business. Yeah, we're very excited to be back. And we're going to start posting more bonus content on our Patreon page. Um, we've actually had toyed with the idea of uh, possibly posting some sort of like little mini episodes there. Yeah. Where we may be doing, you know, additional content as far as whatever our weekly story is about, but maybe some other ranting. Yeah, some funny stuff too. Other true crime types of news and information. 
you know, that kind of stuff. Yes, sir. Yeah. So we appreciate you guys listening and uh, you might want to go check out Peter London because he seems like a real gem of a guy. Yeah, he seems really good and he um, might be up for getting married again. (laughs) Yeah, ladies. He's single, probably. (laughs) 